0: It really started as a love affair with hiking. Um, you know, grew up in New England um, outside of Boston and went up to New Hampshire's White Mountains pretty much every weekend with family and so on. Eventually ended up working for the Appalachian Mountain Club and running all up and down the mountains in there. And uh, I think the first sort of really sort of serious long distance thing that I did was uh, the Appalachian Mountain Club Hut Traverse uh, back in I think 1989, that really mm-hmm. makes me old. Uh, It was about 54 miles from end to end, pretty much across the White Mountain National Forest. And, you know, it was much more a speed hike uh, than it was uh, any sort of ultra run. But, you know, to put all that together was kind of a big deal at the time. And uh, it it kind of opened my eyes a little bit to what's possible.
1: This episode of the Smart Athlete Podcast is brought to you by Solpri. If you're active at all, whether you're running or simply out walking for the day, you've probably experienced one of the number one problems that active people have, and that's chafing. Solpre's all-new, all-natural anti-chafe balm solves that problem while feeding your skin the vital nutrients it needs to be healthy. If you'd like to stop chafing once and for all and treat your body right, go to Sulprey.com to check out the anti-chafe balm today. And that's S-O-L pri.com. Welcome to the Smart Athlete Podcast. I'm your host Jesse Funk. My guest today is the head of college at Schumacher College in Devon, England. He's a runner. He's a lot of other things, but I don't know that we can quite sum them all up with the credentials. Welcome to the show, Pavel Sinkel.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jesse. It's a real pleasure to be here. Thanks for uh, thanks for inviting me. I'm
1: looking forward to our conversation. So, Pavel, I feel like as I'm trying to do. Research on you before before our conversation. So before every show, I'm you know looking into like you have a blog. Um, so I'm trying to look through that and trying to unpack who you are. and <laughs> just to be frank, having a very tough time trying to pigeonhole you, I guess, um, uh, and know quite where to start. Um, okay. so let's let's just let's just start with running because that's the easy one. Um you've been running, I think, for over 30 years now. So you've got a decade on me. Um how did how did you get started running? Why has the love affair lasted so long? Oh, mm-hmm.
0: well, yeah, great question. Um I would like, you know, 30 years, that's being generous, I guess, but you know, it makes me sound really old when you say it that way. So <laughs> um yeah. Well, and, and hopefully we'll talk about age at some point because that's been becoming an, uh, a greater interest of mine as I get older. So thinking about you know, running as an older person too. Um, but it really started as a love affair with hiking. Um, you know, grew up in New England, um, outside of Boston and went up to New Hampshire's White Mountains pretty much every weekend with family and so on. Eventually ended up working for the Appalachian Mountain Club and running all up and down the mountains in there. And uh, I think the first sort of really sort of serious long distance thing that I did was uh, the Appalachian Mountain Club Hut Traverse uh, back in, I think, 1989. That really Mm -hmm. makes me old. Uh, It's about 54 miles from end to end, pretty much across the White Mountain National Forest. And, you know, it was much more a speed hike uh, than it was uh, any sort of ultra run. But, you know, to put all that together was kind of a big deal at the time. And, uh, it was. It kind of opened my eyes a little bit to what's possible, and uh, that you can go for you know 20 hours or so straight, you know, through the night and so on, and and what an experience that really is. Um, I didn't really sign up for any races or start running really seriously until I got into my late 20s, early 30s, even, um, and then didn't start racing at any ultras until I think I was about 40. So really, kind of late to the game. Um, and again, I think it comes, you know, really through a long history of just hiking in different places and really experiencing mountains at sort of a faster pace, seeing how far we can go in a day, you know, how many peaks we can do in a day. And then that sort of naturally evolves into, all right, well, let's see if we can, you know, run 150 miles over a couple days, or, you know, let's pick these really kind of obscure trails that not a lot of people do and see if we can you know, run across those in in some sort of, you know, relative speed. Um, And that really opened up a window for me starting in about 2013, 2014, uh, when I started this climate run project that that you referenced at the beginning, Mm -hmm. that really started, it it was a really a pivot point for me uh, in my professional career, in my teaching that I was doing at the time at Sterling College in Vermont. uh, And then thinking about a way that sort of my growing love, for, you know, ultra running and racing and that sort of thing, um, uh, came together. And I was trying to find a way to really do something more meaningful for, for myself with that ambition and with that passion. And, uh, you know, I had been teaching environmental humanities. I've got, you know, degrees in, uh, you know, English and American literature, and I've been teaching environmental writing, environmental literature, you know, for many, many years. And I started, uh, teaching a bit in environmental philosophy as well. And for me, the philosophy and the running actually really came together, you know, when I first started running these long distances across remote landscapes. Uh, and then to, to weave into that, uh, you know, issues of climate change, um, you know, and ways that I might be able to leverage conversations about human impact on the environment, you know, using some of these sort of, uh, I guess, more notable, you know, runs that I've done, you know. <clears throat> that I can go out and do and then come back and give a presentation about and have generative conversations about, well, so I went to this place and actually climate change is starkly visible here because of glacial melt and uh, post-glacial you know, isostatic rebound and all sorts of you know, physical attributes as well as um, you know the impact of global warming climate change on indigenous communities in, in Northern Scandinavia, for example, and then come back and begin to have conversations in the States or in England or wherever um, about, you know, what, a little bit about what we can do, but also about how uh, we can actually build more resilient relationships with, you know, the broader world um, through doing some of these actions and activities. Now that, then that can lead to our being able to take care of our environment a, a bit more proactively. Yeah, so there's a lot yeah. there.
1: Yeah, a lot to unpack. Um, it's, and that's one of the things I was trying to unpack was, you know how how are you taking the runs and and I don't mean this in a negative way, but how are you doing anything with them? You know, like there are people that just go out and do those runs, but they don't. They're not taking the run and the experience and, and trying to use it as a dialogue to shape any kind of change. You know, right. uh, it's it's just a personal experience. Yeah. It it is kind of interesting that you mention. You know, seeing the the impacts of climate change in these particular environments, yeah. that it's like, as uh, I don't know that I could call either a scientist, maybe you, um, but I don't know that I call myself a scientist, but a believer in science, for sure. Yeah. I think, well, I, I'm a kind of mathematician by training. Oh, nice. So, like, I I believe the numbers. So, like yep. it's enough for me to s- to see the numbers and go, well, obviously, like, there's a trend here that is abnormal. Yeah. But I think for the majority of people, it becomes especially prescient when you can see it, when it's like, okay, well, you know, we go to this environment, and there were glaciers, you know, I, I don't know, 20 meters high, and now they're foot, right. you know, yeah. like.
0: Yeah, glaciers are perhaps the most obvious indicator. Yeah. And, and so that's why I was really drawn to those particular landscapes, you know, Iceland, Northern Scandinavia, Svalbard, um, you know, mm-hmm. because glacial recession, glacial meltback is a really quantifiable uh, impact of, of global climate change and, and warming in, in that instance. You know, but I do want to pause just a bit and say that, well, it's becoming much more visible just about everywhere. Right. Um, and it's a matter of, sort of interpreting that data. And that's where your, your, your point about, well, you know, you believe in science, you know, I think that there are a lot of people that choose to either ignore it or, or think about, or, well, this is a qualitative thing. You know, for example, here in, in Devon, uh, we, we had the wettest winter in some 200 years. Um, it basically rained from the day I arrived in October all the way through to March mm-hmm. uh, with very little respite, lots of flooding um, all around the region. And then autumn, like, a, like a switch, uh, in March, we had the now sunniest spring in the last 100, 150 years. Uh, so we went from being inundated and in flooding to a drought situation pretty much overnight. And it only just rains substantively the other day uh, for the first time in, I don't know, three months, ever since lockdown really started.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And, you know, I mean, you scratch your head at that, you say, oh, it's an anomaly. But, you know, it's a direct impact of, you know, climate systems around the world being changed uh, in, in really dramatic ways. Um, so it does drive that point home. But for me to be able to to, to then you know, make the, th- so to draw the thread between our experience here in these, in these r- regions to places like Iceland and Svalbard and, and Norway uh, and Sweden is really interesting. Um, because for, you know, let's look at Iceland for an example, right? Uh, right when I was doing the research and I do, I researched the areas pretty extensively before going on these runs and, you know, find contacts there and talk to glaciologists and and biologists, botanists, um, social scientists, etc. cetera and effectively interview people, you know, either along the way or before and after, just to, to create some context um, and learn a bit more about the landscape. So there was a study that came out in 2014, um, and I can, you know, share that with you at some point, uh, you know, I find the link. But it was the very first study that actually tied uh, the melting of the glaciers specifically with anthropogenic climate change. So they were able to connect the dots in a way that nobody had before. And, you know, I, there's a they published a map in twenty fourteen of places where the um the land, the Earth's crust, was actually rising as a result of the glacials receding. right. So when the glacial recedes, you have this thing called uh, isostatic rebound or post-glacial rebound, where the crust, in fact springs back. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, that was really fascinating, both on sort of this metaphoric level, where you're talking about, you know, the earth rebounding um, as you're running across it, you know, it's kind of something that you think about as a runner as well sort of this dynamic movement rebounding across the landscape, um, as well as, you know, there were places where that rebound was qu- pretty dramatic, you know, um, millimeters or even a couple centimeters over a course of a year. So mm-hmm. You could almost, if you're really patient, sort of sit and watch the ground rise. Um, and th- the fact that that was directly connected to anthropogenic climate change um, really struck me as being pretty profound. Um, that, you know, literally what we do wherever in the world contributing to greenhouse gas emissions has the impact that it You know um, melts some billion ton, you know, many billions of tons of ice per year uh, And then that the, the literal crust of the earth um, is, you know Rising as a result of that to me to be able to make those threads and connections is really interesting and important um, and, I, and that's been eye-opening for a lot of audiences that I've talked to as well mm. you know and, and, and then to take that a bit further and say, well, so, so what, right? What's, you know, this is Iceland right. this is an Island in, in the, uh, in the North Atlantic. Um, but, you know, you'll recall back in 2010, they had a, a, you know, a volcanic eruption there that actually stopped transatlantic commerce for quite some time because airplanes couldn't fly because of the the um, particulate matter in the air that could happen much more frequently with this destabilization of, of the earth's crust. Right. So again, I'm not, you know, the scientist in, in that respect, but to understand these processes and to recognize the real interconnectedness of the human systems, the economic systems and the ecological ones. You know, that for me was really an important piece to be able to bring back and to, to integrate into my teaching and into
1: my presentation. I think kind of the two two biggest hurdles In in taking that information and approaching the so what question Mm -hmm. to the masses, are number one, how do you communicate the impact of a couple centimeters? Because when out of context, when you just say it's a couple centimeters, well, it's you know, in the things that we measure in everyday life, it's pretty small, you know, so it's like you have to. I feel like you have to get that some degree of scale and, and communicate that in some fashion. Yeah. Um, but then also just getting to the point of overcoming both well, overcoming people's short term memory. Yeah. Because you know, we don't have memories of a hundred years ago right. and or, you know, sometimes even a decade ago, it's hard to be like, Well, what was the weather like? <laughs> you know, so it's like you've got to get over that part too and show why it directly impacts, you know, this person living right. in nowhere, Tennessee. Like, right. they just don't care if they're like, kind of, well, I'll go Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, it's a little flawed, but it's an okay model. If somebody's concerned about where am I going to eat today, they're sure. definitely not super concerned about well, the climate is changing. It's like, well, I need food absolutely absolutely and and
0: you know to be clear the or a couple centimeters of earth crust rising is is one metric in a really complex system right um and you know what i most of the conversations i have around you know climate change and these sorts of issues are about the complexity of the system mm. and that in fact that's the thing we need to focus on and mm-hmm. not so much the individual metrics or indicators but much more the um, the connections between nodes, between the data sets, right? So what are the relationships? You know, how do we to recognize that we are connected to these things, even if it's, you know, you have to jump several several points to get there, mm-hmm. you know, just to recognize that, yeah, we are part of this much broader um, socio-ecological system, right? There was a trio of courses that I taught right before I left Sterling College that were in effectively applications of environmental philosophy that, uh, really focused on this concept of post-humanism, right? And and the idea that, you know, what would the world look like and how would we talk about it differently if we recognize we weren't really at the center of everything? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, it's, it seems like an obvious thing for for the two of us to say. It's like, yeah, well, of course, you know, we're, it's, right. it's a complicated system. But if you actually think about that and model, you know, various like economic systems or educational systems with that in mind, um, then it dramatically changes everything, Right. Mm-hmm. And to, to get people to see that, in fact, yeah, it's it's one really complicated, interwoven, messy, sometimes really not very pretty um, web, uh, then, yeah, that's really what, what I'm hoping that people take away from this. Like, yeah, it's all a mess, but we're a part of that mess. It's not over here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, it's it's part of us.
1: I think part of the issue in communicating that is almost just our limited ability to understand. You know, I think... We can say pretty definitively we are the, if if not one of the most intelligent, uh, you know, animals on the planet. Um, certainly, the best tool creators, and so we, I think as humans we hold ourselves in pretty high regard. Yep. You know, and for I do think. Do what for better or for worse? I think. Right, for better or for worse. Yeah. But because of that, I think that also leaves a blind spot where it's like, well, right now say we don't understand, you know, we're beginning to understand these complex systems and trying to break them down. And it'll take some time in teams of people. And by teams, I mean, hundreds or thousands and gathering data. Right. But it's like, you have this idea of, well, it's always been this way, our behavior, our way of thinking. So why would it be any different? And no matter what it changes to, people still seem to settle back into that. This but is exactly, the way it's always been. It hasn't always been right. Right.
0: We've undergone a, a massive evolution. You know, even if you think about the start of the industrial era or even before that, um, you know how it's, it's this argument that goes. I was like, when did climate change actually start? Right. Right. Um, and you know, I'm not that interested in you know identifying a particular date or, cent- you know, part of a century or when that began, because I think it's been a long, slow evolution. Yeah, um, And, you know, I would say that it's not so much a matter of going back to anywhere, you know, like back to a time before, you know, greenhouse gases or mm-hmm. you know, some sort of idyllic Jeffersonian agro agricultural, you know, um, utopia. You know, I don't think that's really what we're looking for either, because that's not possible, right? right. We can only move forward. Um, so for me, it's figuring out um, I mean, it's interesting. I, uh, before I sort of went to Iceland for the for that first long run, you know, I started thinking, well, I want to get some corporate sponsors and, you know, think about, well, this is going to be all about helping athletes make better decisions about, you know, the products that they use. And maybe we can you know, leverage some um, some changes in some manufacturing processes or some uh, you know, some distribution networks or something like that to have a, to to lessen the impact that athletes themselves are having. You know, mm-hmm. on the internet. and I very quickly realized, I think through my personal experience, that it was much less about that for me. Um, those are also important things, and absolutely we need to follow through on you know being as light as we can. Um, but you know, for me, it was much more about you know once you're out in the midst of you know nowhere. I mean, it's not nowhere, but you know, yeah. way out there. Um, and have effectively sort of opened yourself up to the to the world around you uh, in a way that if you're pushing your body and, and to such an extent run, running 50k or 50 miles or, or more per day, um, you've opened up a vulnerability, um, you know, to the weather, to you know, the amount of daylight, to your own body and, and potential injuries and that sort of thing. You really, I feel, I, I'm laying myself bare um, to that environment. And in those moments, and I can even pinpoint really specific moments where I've had this sort of, you know, awareness of this happening, um, you really feel that the boundaries between the self and the more than human world are beginning to blur. Um, and in that moment of vulnerability, I think we can build really serious resilience, um, in our, in our ability to build relationships across that boundary. Right. And so, you know, if we think about these really complex systems and you know, as you're talking about how how we get people to care about that, if that's not the first thing on their mind, you know, I think the first thing on a lot of people's minds is sort of themselves and their relationship to the world around them. Mm-hmm. Right. And so if I can use even these, you know, talking about these really complicated things and you know, some vocabulary that people might not immediately get, and you know, all these esoteric data sets, it's really about you know one person in a landscape um you know think sort of uh, reflecting on their relationship with that place and how the physical um, the physical exertion or or the the movement across that landscape helps open up pathways into um, building more resilient relationships and i think we can do that anywhere anytime it's just a matter of sort of intention um and having sort of the right uh i don't know sort of the opportunity and and you being able to open one's eyes to those to those opportunities
1: you know you had said and i think i read this on your blog to the the phrase uh, more than human experience i think i'm saying that right and, and that really even as i read that it just it kind of jarred my head and i mean i feel like between the two of us you especially or probably more more than me um, know the power of words
0: mm.
1: and and how certain words are, are evocative where it's like, with again, without context, when you think about that, you're like, well, what does that mean? Are we talking about a spiritual plane? Are we talk- And your your brain, at least my brain, tries to go to these explanations, but it's like, well, no, it's just like it's the world around us that it's non-human. Like all the things that aren't us. But you know, and I, obviously, I'm guilty of this. Even my own brain is like, well, I'm it's me. Like this is this is my world. I, this is my show. Yeah. Um. But I think that that's a great phrase to open a conversation about everything that's going on, because it is so jarring. Like, what are you talking about more than human? Like, we're (laughs) it. (laughs) That's right. It's that shift of perspective. And it's a
0: pretty deliberate turn of phrase. And sometimes I stumble over it because, you know, it doesn't roll off the tongue quite quite as easily. But, you know, deliberately different from, you know, humans and their environment or humans and nature. Or even, you know, human and non-human, uh, because that sets up this binary opposition of, you know, here we are on one side, and here's the non-human on the other. And I think it's vitally important to think about, you know, we are actually part of this more-than-human uh, network, right? We're part of this, you know, what I've, what many people have called a socio-ecological system and network. Um, that, and, and realizing that, I think, is one big step forward to helping to address issues like climate change, even if they don't feel immediately tangible. Mm
1: -hmm. So, so far you started doing climate run, was it 2014? Is that what you said? Something Something like that. Um, So what kind of reception have you gotten so far from people? I'd say quite positive.
0: Yeah. Um, So it's been, you know, comes in waves, right? Because I I went to Iceland, then I came back and I, I gave a lot of presentations there. Um, you know, based in Vermont, I was invited out as far as Ohio and as far south as, uh, you know, North Carolina, um, you know, to give talks to various groups. Uh, Mm -hmm. And that happened once again, after I went on the next trip, and then again, after the next trip, and so on. And, you know, I've given talks to really pretty any, any, you name the type of constituency, whether it's a um, you know, a, a, a small group at a local, you know, outdoor shop, or it's a group, you know, there was, I think, three or 400, um, you know, middle school girls at a private school in Ohio that I talked to about sort of building personal resilience through athletics. Um, and that really resonated super well, because, you know, think about that age and, and that gender and sort of dealing with, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, issues of, um, you know, uh, uh, athletics and sort of body image and and mm-hmm. um, communities and building resilience. So that that worked out really well. And it's a, it's a slightly different talk, right? A different conversation, um, but always the entry into it is like, hey, look at this cool place I went to, and you know, beautiful pictures and videos and great stories of you know me almost drowning doing a river crossing or you know falling through the ice over here, and you know all these really cool stories that really grip people. And then that's the entry into having the conversation you need to have. Um, and so. know, what I hope to do, right, is to continue these for for a bit longer. Um, You know, I've begun writing a book, um, you know, some of it, I think I published a couple of excerpts on the blog. um, And, you know, tentative title is running north, but that's probably going to change. I think that's a bit a bit vague. Um, But really, it's going to get at sort of this uh, interweaving of, you know, philosophy, um, you know, climate change awareness and, uh, and running. And and think about how those how to tell that story in the best in sort of the best possible way. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's not just a story of hey, Pavel goes running, and here are these cool stories, um, but that those are the entry into um, some deeper conversations about some of the issues we're talking about here.
1: Um, I I'm kind of thinking about the dichotomy of you know we're talking about trying to get beyond our own egos to see. All of the complex systems around us, and again, I mean this in a loving way. Um, but then also the idea that, like, you're just one guy, yeah, who has some notion that okay, I'm gonna go make an impact, just me. But you know, so yep. it's like both this 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 interesting dichotomy of we need to look beyond ourselves, yet I also have to take it upon myself if nobody else is going to do it, to get this conversation started and try to impact people.
0: Right. And, you know, again, I'm one of many people who are doing this type, this kind, you know, maybe not exactly this thing, but this sort of thing, right? Yeah. So I don't hold myself up to be any sort of special (laughs) cave, Um, but, you know, trying to do my part uh, in a way. But, But the dichotomy you talk about is really interesting because, you know, we have or for better or for worse, again, this narrative of sort of the lone explorer going out uh, into the landscape and, you know, whether it's going to the North Pole or climbing Everest or, you know, just running and running a couple hundred miles, you know, that is kind of a cultural Western motif that this is, this is what we do. Um, and so I'm always conscious of that and thinking about, well, okay, so am I being a complete hypocrite by coming out here um, and I've had some of those conversations. Right. You know, people have said in the past, well, it's like, why is it that you're taking a flight to, you know, to Scandinavia to run a couple hundred miles so you can come back here and then tell us all about climate change? Aren't you contributing to the problem? And it's like, well, honestly, we're all contributing to the problem really by by dint of, be, of living in the societies that we live in. Um, And, you know, it's not an excuse, but I think we need to be really conscientious about how we use the resources that we're using um, and whether, you know, we're actually creating some overall benefit for, you know, conversation, for society, for, you know, um, uh, sort of helping people recognize the complexity of the situation. Um, And maybe that's just a way to justify, you know, flying out and and then taking a run. But at the same time. You know, I think that the um, sort of relationships that I've been able to create or develop um, by doing these uh, these adventure runs and then the conversations I've been able to have once I've come back, right, I think really or demonstrate, I think, that the importance of you know, going out and being able to tell that story and being able to come back and, and share those experiences. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it definitely... I'm always aware of that dichotomy and that sort of, that that du- that duality of, well, yeah, should I really be out here doing this in the first place? Aren't there sort of better mm-hmm. things we could be spending our time on? Um, but I think this is my way of, of participating in these conversations and other people have different ways of doing that. So.
1: And I think that's, I think that's a tough thing that we run into. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, you know, when people are, for be- lack of a better term, I'll say criticizing, um, You taking a flight to go somewhere to come back to talk about climate change? Mm -hmm. Is that you know? I guess a couple things, but just one: Are you really gonna like get in a canoe and paddle your way? Like you know, like it just doesn't make it doesn't make sense logistically. Number one, but also the idea that if you've it's like if you've ever done anything. That's counter to what would be held as like, the most virtuous, golden, perfect person, right. then your idea is discounted. And it's like, okay, it's okay. And I think good to be critical yep. of people and say, you know, are you consistent with your message? Are you living what you're preaching? Absolutely. But at the same time, there has to be some kind of give and take where you have just the realization, the idea that, like, okay, like, we're not going to tell Pavel to become an ultra distant swimmer and swim across the pond and then go on a hike. It just right. it doesn't, it, it's just, it's, it's nonsensical. In it, it bothers me in, in this context, but in many contexts when people try to just say, well, there's this one thing wrong. So therefore, the whole premise is bunk. You know right. what I mean? So that's. Yeah. It's kind of interesting to see how you've dealt with that, because that's that is a tough thing to get around. So I think that's a pervasive idea right now.
0: Right, and I think it, you know, across the spectrum, are sort of different conversations that are happening in our society currently. Actually, I mean, it's a it, there's some pretty tough tough conversations happening currently. Right. Um, and you know, I read something just yesterday or the day before about, well, you know, recognize that, you know, most people are participating in these conversations in, on in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, you may not be out doing you know, activity X, you may not be doing Y, but maybe you're doing Z and that's perfectly great. Um, but to, just to recognize there are multiple approaches to any challenge, to any problem. And I think the importance is to be, you know, the important part is that we're all moving in kind of the right direction in right, a positive way.
1: I'm trying to look this up. Let's see, if I get the name of this right. I think that's right. Uh, so, yeah in this conversation and all the conversations going on right now, uh, I think I'm a big fan of stand-up. I don't know how much comedy you watch. But um, (laughs) I love Dave Chappelle. And in one of his specials, he was speaking about the Me Too movement at the time. Um, But the, the idea that he brought up seems prescient to me in any conversation where people may seem hypocritical. Yeah, and it, it was basically—I'm paraphrasing. I'm sure I'll butcher it, but that if you want to break a system, um, you know, currently, you know, like in the U.S. and in protests around the world, we're talking about racism. Yeah. Um, in this case, we're talking about the systems of, you know, human—I'll say—economics and its impact on the climate in any system that you want to break you're going to have imperfect allies mm. you know people that maybe they've done something that belongs to that system that's having that negative impact but they're here now and they're trying to figure out how to help so exactly. if you if you skewer them and you say if you've ever done anything wrong you can't participate right. then you're most likely not going to break that system You have to embrace that the people that want to help may be a part of that system and you actually need them to break the system because you need to have all the information of how the system works before you can change it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, again, coming
1: back to what we've been
0: talking about, recognizing how complex that system is. Right. um, You know, necessarily gives people a little bit of leeway that, yeah, I would love to be able to do X. Um, you know, but I think we need to shift our conversation a little bit more before we we're even able to do that,
1: right? Yeah, yeah. Um. Oh, this is a question. We're still on topic. Um, I I do want to ask, what you think? What what? How much responsibility does each person have as a runner or just as a general person? In terms of conservation and affecting change, because like I said, there's this dichotomy of yeah. I have responsibility, yet I'm only one person. Yep.
0: Yeah, what's well, interesting? So I've, I've been having some conversations about this lately. The difference between maybe it's semantics, but for me it's important because you know words are, words are what I do. Right. Uh, between the word sustainability, uh, you know, which everybody seems to know what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, although I think it's much more complex again, uh, and the word regenerative. And which is, you know, has been, it's, it's an up and coming term, you know, there are a lot of sort of centers for regenerative study and regenerative agriculture is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of the, the definitions of those two words are really important, you know, sustainable, to me. Um, and, you know, it's not just my definition, but really is about, you know, how can we minimize our impact? on the more-than-human world, right, um, as we go about our daily business? And how can we sustain what we're doing for the longest possible period without creating circumstances that don't allow that to, um, to happen, right? So how can we basically keep doing what we're doing, um, but do it in such a way that minimizes our impact? And I think that's really important, right? Um, because it makes us uh, sort of look at things like, oh, well, we need more electric vehicles or we need more public transportation or we need to take fewer flights and we need to do this and we do that. Fewer dependence on fossil fuel, less dependence on fossil fuels and so on. Um, Regenerative, on the other hand, is I think an evolution of that. Um, It basically, you know, from my perspective, talks about that same relationship, but instead of minimizing our impact, how can everything that we do um, have a positive impact, a net positive impact on the more than human world and help to actually regenerate and build a greater resilient relationship with everything that's around us. Um, and that, for me, those are like night and day, right? You know, can we just sort of try to maintain the status quo with some, you know, minor changes? Um, you know, we switch everything to, to wind power, everything to solar power, but we don't change our overall lifestyle uh, and impact that we have. That's more sustainability, which is an important step um, you know, I think a step beyond that, which is really effective in smaller scale enterprises, um, is to, to give back as much as possible in everything that you do, right? So again, it's that idea of shifting the, uh, shifting the sense of, well, humans are not at the center of the conversation, um, or they should not always be. Uh, then how does that change things? If, you know, we think of the whole complexity of the system as being at the center of the conversation, Right. I think that changes your daily decision-making in a massive way.
1: Well, it's like, uh, I feel like there's two approaches basically where you know, you're know, you describing the approach where we're basically trying to take baby steps, steps yeah. where it's like, okay, we're doing negative impact. Let's figure out how to stop impacting things negatively, right. maintain the status quo. And then the next step is, okay, how do we get the trend line, start going back up in a positive right. direction? But then there are there's the the whole other you know way of thinking about it where it's like we're having a negative impact, how do we just suddenly switch directions and go to positive instead of you know hitting that that bottom and staying there? Yep. And that's the ideal situation, but I think you have a lot of inertia, economic, mental cultural all that kind of stuff to overcome and that's part of why it's almost necessary that on our own we have that sustainability kind of step yep unless by outside forces we are forced to change you know like with all the state home orders yep i think that like that's an outside force we had no control over uh, i'll say that relatively that's a whole other conversation <laughs> but just um it forces a lot of employers to say, okay, well, maybe we don't need everybody to come in the office. And then right. that's like, that's where you can make a sharp direction the other way, where it's like, okay, now we don't need all these cars on the road like, every single day, versus yeah. let's go to electric vehicles. That's right.
0: Yeah. And I think you know, you're right that we need an evolution, sort of a, a um, transformative change through. Um, Sustainability is a stepping stone to potentially a regenerative relationship and so on. And it's interesting to think about the COVID-19 situation um, that has, you know, situation global pandemic crisis, right? That has put people in these positions of of pausing um, a lot of this activity that contributes to greenhouse gases or contributes to climate change or contributes to, you know, what we would think of as environmentally, you know, negative impacts. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of conversations and, you know, I administrate in higher education. So there are a lot of conversations about higher education and how, well, you know, this is the thing that's going to change the future of higher education.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And, you know, I absolutely hope so. Uh, And, you know, on my own and, you know, working with my colleagues uh, and contacts, we're trying to do just that, right, to make some shifts in the future of higher education to, you know, do more um, offsite you know, learning, uh, potentially, so international students don't necessarily need to travel to sort of rethink the way that we're doing residential education, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a lot of great opportunity there to really rethink pedagogy as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's the same conversations among uh, ecologists and environmentalists saying, you know, this is that moment that hopefully will make this seismic shift. Um, But, you know, I worry on all of those counts, right? As lockdowns start to lessen around the world, you know, we are very quickly going back to exactly the same habits that, that mm-hmm. we right? Where, you know, shopping, for example, just like after 9-11, I pointed out to someone the other day that, you know, George, George Bush was quick to say, you know, in response to this, you know, we need to continue our lives as usual. And I think he was quoted as, you know, we need to go out and, and, and you know, spend money and, and help the economy move forward and effectively go shopping. Um, there's a lot of that right now as well. You know, people have been at home for weeks and weeks without the opportunity to go out and, you know, buy the things that they may need, but also, you know, to queue up and go to Ikea for, you know, that thing that they may not need. But, you know, now they have the opportunity to go get it. Right. So is it a sort of reversion or a continuation of, of business as usual, you know, or is there, in fact, going to be something that has shifted like, well, all right, we managed to do without those things for this amount of time. Um, that's made me think, well, look at the money we may have saved um, or the, the job that we may no longer have. So we can't afford to do this. Uh, then maybe that has a knock on effect um, and, and is positive. But you know, it, these are these are tricky, tricky paths to walk because there are a lot of pressures from from different sides, for sure.
1: I kind of think of, you know, I I wish it was as easy as this is an opportunity for all of humanity to get together and Mm-hmm. You know, make that sharp direction towards correction and regeneration. But I, although I'm typically an optimist, I'm a little pessimistic in this in this situation, where I I don't think it's that easy. Yeah, and and, and because of like what I mentioned earlier, basically people's short term memory. Yeah. And think about think about this is one year. I live in Kansas City, so. Uh, Four months ago, the Chiefs won the Super Bowl. That seems like a lifetime ago. <laughs> you know three yeah, months does. three months ago, everybody was um, obsessed with Tiger King.
0: yeah no
1: nobody cares anymore.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. <laughs> you know that's we're we're not even talking in, in a matter of years. We're just talking months yeah how, right. you know how quickly things sh- shift and it seems like a long time, but it's really not, especially when we're talking about, you know, global changes. That's right. So, I think of now more as an important data point in the argument for change moving forward, mm-hmm. especially like when we saw um, the reduction in emissions in China, when everything was shut down, factories are shut down, and you're seeing like clearing of air and those kind of things, yeah. where it's like when people can make the argument, okay humans aren't actually having an impact this is just normal like the climate changes right then we could say okay well let's look at this you know 2 3 month period of time where we weren't doing those things and even in this time this is what happened right it still won't convince everybody because there's always going to be holdouts for better or for worse but that's kind of what i see this situation as in this context whether yeah. i'm right or wrong but that's just that's how i see it as like another another data point another tool in the tool belt to argue for we do need to continue to make change and here's definitive
0: proof that's right i think it adds a voice to the overall conversation yeah and, and it gives us a lot of i think really interesting visuals and narratives of, of things that have happened you know animals walking through streets in places they hadn't been seen before and you know, on a very sort of local scale, as well as I think on a on a more global one, it would be interesting to see, you know, some sort of broader. And I, I haven't, and I'm sure maybe it's out there already, but some sort of broader analysis of greenhouse gas emissions globally uh, as a result of the COVID
1: crisis. Um, but it'll be interesting to look back on as well. Yeah, I I feel like somebody's collecting that data, and I had. I think I talked to Ian about this. I, I don't remember if I said at the beginning of, of our recorded conversation, but Ian Bollinger from episode 50 is who referred me to speak with Pavel um, also about climate change. Um, but I feel like I talked to Ian about about the si- kind of similar situation where we right at the beginning of um, state home orders, I think when I spoke with Ian. And I think we talked about like somebody somebody's collecting that data so it's oh, sure. yeah it, you know it it may not be immediately available but i think we will see i would i would hope at least a few different kind of institutions you know present that data in different ways and show hey this is this impact happened here and that impact happened there and ian obviously is more on the economic side trying to figure out what economic impact yep. happens with climate change so if you want to watch that episode, go back to episode 50. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens long term. And uh, I think for me, and probably for you, please correct me if I'm wrong, It even when things happen fast on, you know, say a human timeline fast. So, say we could get this done in a decade, a decade's relatively fast, so we could turn everything around and make things regenerative, a decade still seems like a long time from like a human perspective, even though it's really a very short turnaround.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, you know, you think back to all of the, you know, um, technology that we take for granted on a daily basis, you know, iPhones came out in whatever it was 2007. Yeah. Um, And, you know, for me, they've been here forever. and. Mm Somebody who's you know almost fifty now, you know that wasn't that long ago.
1: Yeah. Right? Uh,
0: so yeah, I think there are some real challenges, uh, and that's come up a few times in our conversation about sort of people's memory and people's, uh, I interpretation of the reality around them really is what it is, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so that's why I think it's really important to continue having these conversations and sort of to you know. Maybe again, I'm sort of justifying my own my own passions, but you know, important to continue doing this kind of thing um, and writing about it uh, and sharing the experience and saying, look, you know, yeah, we might have had this blip in 2020, you know, and we look back at this um, where you know this happened, that was positive, this happened, that was positive because of this great tragedy, um, which you know is, I think, a really interesting conversation in and of itself. Um, but we're continuing to you know see sort of exacerbated effects of, you know, greenhouse gas emissions, of, you know, global warming, of glacial melt, of this and of that, and and they continue to have even greater knock-on effects on, you know, things like fishery populations, you know, fish migrating north or south because of the changing of the salinity or the temperature of the ocean water. Um, you know, the, the systems are so complicated uh, that I think people who are, even are directly impacted by some of the things may not recognize that that's an impact of climate change. Mm-hmm. And so, I think we need to continue having these conversations, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Um, so, as we're running short on time, there's a question I'm asking everybody this year. Yep. And it, I think will be particularly interesting to hear from you, given what you do. Um, so, I'm asking everybody this year, uh, what do you think the purpose of sport is? Hmm. It's interesting. Um, well, I mean,
0: for me, and I think... The way that I have um, sort of intentionally integrated, you know, my sport with um, the teaching that I do, with the writing and, and etc. Um, you know, a, a quick plug for you know the college where I work, so Schumacher College. Right? Um, we run a series of master's programs, uh, and I've we've recently just proposed one to start in 2021 um, on movement, mind, and ecology. Uh, which really gets that sort of the, the complete synergy of everything we've talked about today, uh, where it will use movements, whatever that is, whether it's rock climbing or running or swimming or, or dance, um, as a way to connect with a, a broader ecological system, right? So for me, the role of sport, I mean, there's so many you know, roles mm-hmm. that it plays, right? My son who's 15 is on the Nordic ski team and you know, sport plays a really essential, important role for him um but you know for me and for for the work that I do it's about um, creating an opening uh, creating a connection with the more than human world um, and it doesn't matter what that sport is whether you're you know walking for a mile you know down the road because it's your your daily exercise during quarantine um you can connect with a a natural landscape that way that you probably wouldn't have thought to do otherwise um similarly if you you know go cycle for a couple hundred miles or, or go run an ultra or something um, you are connecting in a particular way with that particular landscape. So for me, that, that's essentially the, the purpose of sport is to reconnect us with the um, the more than human world as well as with ourselves.
1: It's the first time I've gotten that answer, so that's that's I was <laughs> excited to ask you that because I was like, you're definitely going to have a, a unique perspective <laughs> on on what this is, mm-hmm. um, Pavel. If people want to find you, keep up with Climate Run. Yep. Um, everything that's going on with you, where can they find you? So just
0: www.climaterun.org. Um, I tend to keep that fairly updated and are uh, descriptions of all the runs that I've done over the last few years, as well as some about plans that I have for the future. So,
1: yeah. Sounds good. Thanks for spending time with me today. Absolutely. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Take care.